thank you. First, I want to thank Stefano and Clement for the invitation. So the subtitle of my uh, paper is How Might a History of French Literature Be Written? Ever since the major reforms of the Third Republic, the history of French literature as taught to school children and students has been embedded in an essentially national narrative framework. It would be, uh, of course, a mistake to suggest that this history is written in exactly uh, the same manner today as uh, was the case 130 years ago. While the corpus has broadened, while wise methods are developed and diversified, it nevertheless remains a field where nothing or little has changed. That of the cultural and political framework in which this history is embedded. The history of French literature is written from a French standpoint and brings together a language, French, a land, France, and a certain number of characteristic traits identified as French. Even if a return to the Grand National narrative is currently a subject of discussion in certain intellectual and political circles in France, following the two terrorists' attacks that shed so uh, much blood in January and November, this French redundancy of France's history is in fact now being considerably undermined in the, in the historical domain. Since the appearance in the 1980s of the notion of cultural transfer, transfer culturel, an entire series of works had appeared under various names, comparative history, interlinked history, or connected history. At the same time, we have seen the development of post-colonial studies, even in France, from the United States. Yet, none of this has truly affected the way in which the contemporary history of French literature is being written in France in the field of French literature studies. And we have to turn to the United States and the collective work French Global, a new approach to literary history in 2010, to find in this era elements of these approaches which are more usually found in historical <coughs> research. I'm not going to rehash the story of this way of writing, the history of French literature, which relates to the period of its institutionalization, marked by vindictive patriotism and colonial expansionism of the Third Republic. Now I will explore its underlying motivations, which are inextricably linked to the role that literature played, perhaps still plays, in France's national imagination or at least in that of the most cultural, culturally-minded French elite. Instead, what I would like to do at this conference is suggest avenues for further reflection for, for us to write a different history of French literature, one which challenges the usually accepted national framing and which looks for alternative ways of, of looking at things. It is in this spirit that I am going to put forward a series of five propositions and remarks, based on the privileged example of French literature between the two worlds. So, come my, my first proposition. With regard to what interests us there, French literature between the, the two worlds can be roughly divided into two periods. 
The first, which we might call the cosmopolitan period, covers the 20s, while the second was, was the internationalist era of the 30s. Internationalism and cosmopolitanism both attest to a foreign presence in France's literary and intellectual life and in the work created therein. In this respect, they both refuse a purely, any purely indigenous solution to the state of crisis in which France found itself. From aesthetic, moral, political, and social standpoints, they nevertheless defined two different modalities of this foreign presence. The literary cosmopolitanism, which dominated the 20s, can essentially be defined as an openness to foreign literature and culture based on individual choice, or which, in any case, was considered and proclaimed as such. Cosmopolitan writers were above all individuals, and it was as individuals in all their singularity that they took from the vastness of the world cultural and literary repertoire. Whatever interested them, whatever echoed their irreductible sensibility, and allowed them to most effectively enrich it and allow it to resonate. The same cannot be said of the internationalism of the 30s, which subjecting the creative sovereignty to a set of rules that applied to everyone. Internationalist writers were not unbending aesthetics, estates devoted to the expression of their self in the world. They were members of a community fighting to achieve specific collective goals, essentially peace between peoples, and the taking of power by the working class masses. As far as cosmopolitan individuals were concerned, all cultures were a priori worthy of interest. And whilst the new political horizon that was opening up was that of the future establishment of ways of living or of values, shared by all mankind, its stance would nevertheless appear elitist. With them, humanity converged, but converged within the upper echelon. More often than not, in the testes shared by the upper bourgeoisie and the planetary aristocracy, Paul Morand, by the way, more rarely in a moral syncretism that combined the main virtues of different civilizations like uh, uh, Romain Roland. The internationalist collective did not see things in the same light. It developed a solidarity which crossed boundaries on the basis of its membership of the proletariat, and even if it agreed to rally under its banner, bourgeois, writer, or intellectual, this implied a stance which was anti-intellectualist or closer to the militant base. Thus, against the complete and utopic inclusion of cosmopolitanism, stood the internationalist fight against class enemies, yet their universal dimension led to an underlying expulsion. On one side of the people and of popular culture, and on the other side of the bourgeoisie and of bourgeoisie culture. It is highly noteworthy that internationalism was based on institution far more powerful that one th that than was the case of cosmopolitanism. This is not to say that cosmopol cosmopolitanism was not based on any institutions. 
In the literary arena of the 20s, there were literary journals, collections, and societies who stood up for cosmopolitanism. Yet this was in no way comparable with the internationalism, which was grounded on institutions that were significantly more powerful, if only because they emanated directly from the political arena rather than being strictly literary or intellectual. Internationalism, as it developed throughout the 30s, had strong links with the French Communist Party. It was also the fruit of various international institutions in which the USSR played a major role. Suffering from the backlash of the cultural policy, and more broadly, of the Soviet Union's domestic policy, which were themselves activated via a multitude of institutions, sometimes in agreement, sometimes not. France's intellectual and literary internationalism thus took on a collective dimension that was more clearly organized, more restrictive, and potentially inhibiting for individual creativity. The lightweight nature of cosmopolitanism on institution instead worked in favor of the development of a singular test and free expression. Two different writer ethoses come face to face here. Without being the sole reason, this is undoubtedly one of the reasons for which cosmopolitanism authors played a greater role than their internationalist counterparts in the history of French literature, as it is written in France. The teachers of literature who write these histories are not political activists. They are literature lovers. And they prefer André Gide, Paul Morand, and Marguerite Ursenard to Henri Poulaille, Eugène Dabi, or Panaïti Strati. In a literary field where, which follows the principle of a permanent revolution and where values of distinction are dominant, it is clearly better to adopt an unassignable position and develop an unparalleled work than to obey, in semblance at least, collective watchwords and to appear to apply recipes defined by others. Now come my second preposition. It goes without saying that the succession of cosmopolitanism in the 20s and internationalism in the 30s does not tell the whole story of French literature between the worlds with regard to the inseparable historical, geographical, and cultural framework of imagination in which it was embedded. This is true for three reasons that I will examine in this proposition and the two that follow. First and foremost, it should be noted that internationalist premises already existed in the 20s, and conversely, that cosmopolitanism was not entirely absent in the 30s. More profoundly, internationalism and cosmopolitanism were part of a long history which, on the one hand, requires the different moments to be uh, determined in their specificity, and, on the other hand, requires identification of the ideal type of two categories that might be considered as transsecular. The internationalism of the, of the 30s was not, therefore, an ex nihilo creation. It was based on what had already gone before, whether one thinks of the International Workers' Association 
founded in London in, in 1864, or even earlier of the socialism of uh, 48. If we consider it in its Western version, cosmopolitanism has an even older history, going back to the Stoicism of ancient Greece, which reached an especially marked moment of development in the Europe of the Enlightenment, and which also has, has, has also seen a marked uh, rebirth over the last 20 years. This is no way surprising if we consider that this strong comeback of cosmopolitan thinking took place following the disappearance of the USSR and the communist bloc, and the global decline of the communist ideal, and thus the relegation or even disappearance of internationalist institutions. Forces are now at work on a global scale, forces that are those of globalized capital, which makes light of the rights established within national framework, and which favor free circulation, if not of people, at least of goods, and globalized imaginaries in search of something to nourish their aesthetic sensibility and their moral values within the vast repertoire of planetary cultures. We can therefore see that the histories of cosmopolitanism and of internationalism are far from foreign to one another, but that they develop in an inversely proportional manner. More broadly, on the one hand, by defining cosmopolitanism at the very minimum as a set of attitudes, practices, and institutions which aim to emphasis and exalt an individual's belonging to the world, and on the other hand, internationalism as all those who try to organize creation on a collective basis, designed to favor a certain number of common goals, we can establish two idle types one which is at least as ethical and aesthetic as political, and one which is more political than aesthetic or even ethical. Boards are, are, of course, constantly evolving, but they escape in part in a specific given context. Third proposition. It must also be said that cosmopolitanism and internationalism were by no means alone in organizing French literary creation in the 20s and the 30s, opposing these two movements, fighting together to open up to foreign countries, was a counter-movement which was undoubtedly far more powerful, literary nationalism. From as far back as the 16th century, at least, and the famous Pléiade group, literary nationalism had been the dominant ideology of the French literary arena. It too always related to a certain context, and it could at the same time be defin defined as an idol team, leading to valorization of the excellence of French literature. Literary nationalism also, also had its degrees. It also led to different aesthetic forms. In order to rapidly settle matters, we can put forward the names of two writers who represent each end of the spectrum of nationalist beliefs in terms of literature. At the maximalist hand, we have Maurice Barrès. We believe that the French people could regenerate themselves by remaining faithful to Catholicism, to their rural roots, and to the genius of their race. At the other end is André Gide. We believe that France's literary genius was the result of a positive blend of peoples, 
and who proved himself extremely capable of assimilating outside influences. The latter certainly made violent attacks on the former in his series Letters to Angel, published in 1898-1899, in relation to the issue of Lettres Françaises, opening or closing its door to foreign contributions. Yet, we must not allow this controversy to hide the fact that both writers shared the same exaltation concerning the superiority of French literature, and that the difference essentially lay in the degree of foreign influence that they were prepared to accept, with the former's fear of its denaturation against the latter's confidence in its assimilation genius. I should immediately point out that the writing of a renewed literary history cannot lead to a denial of the pregnancy of the national imaginary, of the mechanism that produced it or of the backlash it has on the literary and intellectual arena. The representation of French literature as an emblematic national product is far too embedded in the national imaginary for it to be possible to hide the multiple viewpoints, practices, social and dissemination venues which attest to its existence. However, the representation is conserved, be it in cultural terms or racial terms, we are obliged to restore this influence on literary creation and on intellectual thinking, as well as on the categories which organize literary history. Literary historians do not add a nationalism to French literature. Whilst their objective might have been and may still be to ensure the unity and grandeur of national literature, they also, they also take account of a literature which to some extent at least thinks about itself in these terms. This simple observation thus makes it necessary to take into account not the national issue as such, but what the national issue is about and the impact it has. This is the only way to clarify a whole set of phenomena which range from flag-wearing glorification to historical melancholy and aggressive resentment. Yet this exclusive path of national preference is not the only one taken by literature which has been written and which is still being written in France, whether in French or not, and by Frenchmen or foreigners, and is therefore not the world history that needs to be written to take account of the complexity of such a subject. In identifying the presence of internationalism and cosmopolitanism, one can, a contrario, widen the framework of a literary and intellectual history that is too gallo-focused, and at the same time understand the game of national, cosmopolitan, and internationalist positions and standpoints, along with the system that they form between open conflict, latent opposition, or ever possible appeasement. Fourth proposition. It is important to note that these various institutions and practices which define nationalism, cosmopolitanism, and internationalism are not in total opposition to one another, and that, on the contrary, there is a certain porosity between them. This is clear with regard to cosmopolitanism and internationalism. I don't want to develop this point. But the porosity between the different stances was hardly any less effective 
in relation to nationalism on the one hand, and on the other, internationalism and cosmopolitanism, which at first glance would appear to be geometrically opposed to the former. Although literary communism, as it developed in France, was influenced by Soviet Russia, it never failed to defend its eminently French character. This was true not only at the time of the resistance and post-Second World War, but also prior to that in the 30s. In the same way, an author such as Paul Morand was considered to be a great cosmopolitan writer, but this is no way prevented him from also positioning himself on the side of a certain literary and cultural nationalism marked by a strong xenophobic undertones. There is no doubt that we now need to go further still regarding the close link between nationalism, internationalism, and cosmopolitanism, and introduce a new term, that of imperialism. As the manifestation of nationalism, imperialism is in fact a truncated reading of cosmopolitanism or internationalism. Of internationalism, imperialism retains the notion of a plurality of nations, but unlike internationalism, it aspires to one nation's supervision of others. Of cosmopolitanism, it retains the universality of certain values, but it refuses to accept they can be found everywhere, and it assumes its exclusivity. Imperialism can therefore be defined as the cosmopolitanism or internationalism of an exclusive center, for which not all men are individuals sharing the same value, or citizens sharing the same rights, or that they may only be so become after a lengthy process of assimilation. Nowadays, when we consider this type of imperialism, rather than the USSR stranglehold over Eastern Europe, or Nazi Germany's domination of continental Europe, which nevertheless opened up interesting avenues for reinterpreting the history of French literature during the 30s and the 40s. It is European colonization which immediately springs to mind, a colonization founded not just on a desire for economic exploitation or political domination, but also on the propagation of values of civilization. Within the framework of its colonial empire, France put forward the universality of its civilization, which fully entitled it to spread its light throughout a world filled with darkness. As a version of cosmopolitanism and internationalism, this imperialism broke, uh, broke with it an entire policy of language and literature, which tended to confine any indigenous culture or idiom to local use, according universal privilege to French language and literature. But an imperial framework does not always mean unequivocal outcome. Okay. Two. It's disaster. Okay. <laughs> uh, I just want to say that uh, the empire can produce uh, some uh, mechanism that go against himself. That we Even with the nationalist uh, scene, like uh, the way Maurice Barrès is very famous in the colonial periphery of France. So I go to my fifth proposition. Uh, my fifth, so the last one. <laughs> nationalism, imperialism, cosmopolitanism, and internationalism are not nested into one another like Russian dolls. From this point of view, 
their analysis is not part of the classic question of scales in history. There will be not real benefit in pretending that the national scales is smaller than the imperial, cosmopolitan, or international scale. And between the, late, the, the latter three, it is clear that it will be totally artificial to try to run them into a progressive inclusion. From a strictly geographical standpoint, the French nation was, of course, smaller than the French Empire. But the empire was present on mainland France, and the nation was projected throughout the empire. Uh, it is not that local, uh, local equals global. The idea of a global reality is too imprecise and does not allow us to grasp the wide variety of processes which are at work in a given locality, yet which have their origin elsewhere. It is rather than the local is inhabited by something behind. Here I wish to introduce the metaphorical notions of theatres, play and stage, but I have no time to do that. But anyway, <laughs> uh, we, you, there is, a, there is a, a main stage, in, by the way, in Paris, and you, with the main, the nationalist, the nationalist uh, play is uh, played there on, on that stage, but there is other stage in the same place uh, who can urge can a different way of seeking the literature. Uh, okay, it's too difficult for me. Uh, I think I'm going to stop you there because we okay, don't okay, have time okay. for yeah. the rest of the <laughs> Sorry, sorry. <laughs>